Welcome to the RSP Cast. This is going to be an episode of Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And I'm going to have future episodes of Scout Talk this year with Russ Landy. Russ will be coming back. He is um, the head of U.S. Scouting for the Montreal Alouettes and a former NFL scout. Um, he's agreed to do it again for the third consecutive year, so we're looking forward to doing that again. But I had some things on my mind after the, the 2021 opener here against with the Buccaneers and the Cowboys. It was a fun game to watch. And I ended up spending a fair bit of the evening or night afterwards talking with um, former RSP writer Eric Stoner. And we talked about football and then we talked about video games. And while I don't play a lot of video games anymore, he shared some really cool video game, um, how would I put it, like reviews, commentary, um, analysis of video games um, that are popular on YouTube. And it really got me thinking about performance again and the nature of performance and how I know most of you come to this come to my site and look for my analysis because you want to get better as a scout or you want to know what it's like scouting the game or you want to have at least some level of knowledge about it so that you can feel or try on what it's like to some extent. And I try to provide that for you guys in a variety of ways and one of the things that I want to share today when it comes to performance is talk about the emotion of the game. So I'm going to read something that I wrote about seven years ago. Some of, I'm sure many of you have read this at one time or another. But I want to read it here and then I want to talk a little bit more about my own personal um, lessons about performance and how that has come to really help inform me about what happens in sport. And the name of this essay is called Deny Emotion and You Only See a Fraction of the Game. I wrote it um, in October of 2014. So it's a seven-year-old essay. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Um, I still share this a fair bit. But um, I know a lot of people don't read nowadays. And with podcasts, it gives me an opportunity to, to share content that has some evergreen um, you know, information to it. So, first of all, there's a few things this post is not. Although some of you may suspect it is, it's not about bashing statistical analysis. Quality analytics will only help the game of football over time in the same way that quality practices of medicine helped mankind. Even if there is, has been, and will be arenas of film and statistical investigation where snake oil still peddled under the guise of legitimacy, there will always be these covered wagons trolling the planes. This post isn't a call to action about that. I'm not trying to save the football analysis world with my points in this essay, and I'm not telling you to abandon the pursuit of knowledge using measurable or logical outcomes based on data or film study. I do plenty of that in the rookie scouting portfolio. I'm just as much about analytics as film, and most analytics who really get that knew that about me heading in. Dwayne McFarlane, the reason he was attracted to my work, the analytics, you know, fantasy, high-stakes fantasy expert that he is over at Pro Football Focus, is the fact that he knew that I did analytics and combined it with film study. So, most of all, what I'm trying to tell you is that I'm not claiming that I have all the answers here. I don't claim I have any of the answers. 
what I'm doing is sharing thoughts on a subject to add further spark to an ongoing conversation with a select number of writers about the game and how the general public studies it. Even if it reads otherwise, I'm not drawing firm conclusions. Keep this in mind, and you might find what I have to say below worth exploring. And the first point is that football is as much an emotional game as it's intellectual. Sport, like any performance-related endeavor, has players, plays, and storylines that ascend to the realm of high art. Engaging in the analysis of art can be an exciting process, but it's an imperfect endeavor. Now, I'm differentiating between analysis and criticism here. The root word for criticism is the Greek word kritikos, and it means able to discern. There's judgment involved with criticism, and a good critic is an educated person in this field. Yet, art doesn't appeal only to the most educated among us. While an intellectual endeavor for some, it's not the only way it engages an audience. Football is as much an emotional game as it is intellectual. A coach, a player, and a team emotionally in tune with the tenor of a contest can gauge when an opponent has lost its will. There's no algorithm for it that we know of. And the tells, from an observational perspective, they haven't been studied enough to determine if there's any predictive value to a player's slump in his shoulder, the head pointing downward, or the hands resting on the hips. But most of us have enough of a combination of innocence and awareness to intuit that emotion has a deep role in the outcome of every human interaction. Academics who use stats as their daily tools to conduct research also realize that cognitive bias, in its simplest terms, being motivated by our emotions, is a real phenomenon. Although we often consider cognitive bias as a bad thing, it's not always the case. I mean, if a team's down 21 zip at halftime, emotionally still feels that they're really in the game when everything from an intellectual standpoint indicates the opposite, this belief, faith, or form of logical gymnastics, whatever you want to call it, whatever this positive thinking that they have can really be a helpful form of cognitive bias. So emotion is often the motivating reason why an offense or defense chooses to repeat a play call when it might not be intellectually the best option. Or when John Elway tells his offense, we've got them right where we want them, at the Broncos' two-yard line in Cleveland Municipal Stadium just seconds away from a Brown Super Bowl berth back in the 1980s, while that wasn't a logical statement from a Denver quarterback, neither was Joe Montana telling his teammates in the huddle that he spotted John Candy with less than two minutes left in the Orange Bowl while trailing the Bengals in the Super Bowl. Writers, scouts, coaches, and teammates wouldn't praise players for their passion, energy, and resiliency if it wasn't a huge factor in the game. And I know that there are some who just hate the term momentum. And if I've read his takes correctly, and I don't know whether this has changed. Again, I wrote this seven years ago. My colleague at Football Outsiders, Aaron Schatz, doesn't believe in momentum. Now, I understand the thought that if you can't measure it with why 
if you can't measure it at all, why legitimize it as a concept? But whenever I hear someone dismiss the concept of momentum, I have the sneaking suspicion that person has never competed in a physical contest where fear for their well-being is a real factor of influence in the competition. If they've participated in sport, then I'd be willing to bet that they've blocked out that part where they may have emotionally given up once they got popped in the mouth or physically dominated by another human being. Because I've seen my share of people with a highly intellectual bent rationalize the moments where they got physically dominated and ultimately emotionally flustered in that moment. They'll blame the domination on the opposition, breaking the rules with rough play. They'll question the fairness of the game. They'll make logical conclusions that they should stop making the effort at all. And then the reaction falls under a convenient opportunity to preserve this intellectual, non-emotional perspective about sport. But it denies something truly important about contests. And before I get too far on this, I don't know if this is Aaron Schatz's experience, and I'm not attacking his manhood or his toughness. I'm questioning if he's ever truly competed in situations where the prospect of getting physically dominated with a side dish of pain was a real part of his formative experiences because a lot of people have not engaged in sport at that level beyond early childhood, and it's easy to forget about the role of emotion in competition, especially as we grow up and we start to pursue more academic-oriented things, we can kind of divorce ourselves from the emotion and the value of emotion. There aren't a lot of professions in this world where we actually study emotion, and if we do, it's about studying how to manipulate the emotions of people. So this isn't solely about football either. I mean, wrestling and boxing are even better examples of highly intellectual sports that have equal doses of emotion as a competitive factor. Boxing isn't called the sweet science because it sounds cool. I mean, Mike Tyson may have made some colossally stupid decisions in and outside the ring, and I love the fact that he's so honest about that. It's refreshing to see someone with the humility to, to talk about things the way he did. You know, honesty. It, there's a lot to learn from him. But listen to him talk about the technique and strategy of boxing, and he'll display great quantities of intellectual skill on that subject as well. And think about the no, the famous Nomas rematch between Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran. Now, I was al- you know, alive to see that as a kid. It epitomizes the idea of one fighter allowing his emotions to override his skill. Say whatever you like about preparation and conditioning, but we've seen matches where physically and intellectually disadvantaged opponents still manage to beat the favorite. And in this case, Duran lost his will. Now, despite the fact that 25 of Sugar Ray Leonard's 36 victories were knockouts, his, his style was best known for his speed, technical precision and timing to mentally confuse, physically tire, and psychologically overwhelm an opponent's emotion rather than sheer power locating his opponent's good night button at will. And Jim Brown? He was more like football's Joe Lewis or Muhammad Ali. He was a physical superman 
who might have been average on his home planet, but on Earth, he was a dose of humanity's future 50 years ahead of his time. Brown never missed a game in an era of football that was outlawed by the Goodell regime. In his book, Out of Bounds, Brown discusses his fears playing the game. This is what he said. I was scared. Not physically. You can't play in the NFL, not for long, if you're frightened of taking punishment. What scared me was the Giants' tactics. Specifically, I was afraid those tactics would stop me from performing. In my entire life, fear of not performing is the greatest fear I have ever felt. I wasn't alone. Bill Quinlan, a defensive end, was one of the roughest, toughest guys on the Cleveland Browns. He would throw up violently before every single game. Quinlan's boogeyman was inside his stomach tearing it away. Being the start of my team, perhaps the most scrutinized man in the league, being the star of my team, excuse me, perhaps the most scrutinized man in the league, my boogeyman was 20 feet tall. The pressure on any big star is somehow unique. You're in the dressing room before the game. Younger guys are glancing at you. Veterans depending on you. 60,000 people want to be entertained, brother. You can't have an ordinary game. That shit would scare me to death. I'd be trying so hard to concentrate, start thinking, wow, I think I'd rather not be here. At first, when I had those thoughts, I was miserable. I felt so damn guilty. Then I talked to other people, not my teammates or opponents, but men I respected in other professions, and learned that fear is perfectly natural. It's essential if men didn't blink when you threw something at their eyes. If they had no fear, they wouldn't survive. I was set free. Once I admitted I had fear, I used that sucker, made it my ally. Okay, I have a contest this afternoon. I am fucked up. By game time, I can take this totally messed up feeling, pull my stuff together. Can I do it? Can I become? Can I come face to face with the devil and still perform? When I discovered I could, it was a hell of a piece of knowledge. By kickoff, I could grip my fear, transform it into power. Unfortunately, during halftime against the Giants, I forgot all that. I didn't have a fucking clue. Not only had they rattled my mind, the Giants had messed with my eyes. I felt like I was looking through a thick curtain. Then halftime ended. End of soul search. I thought, man, I got a game here. They go for my eyes again? I'll deal with it then. I never discovered what I would have done. Um, I first, first time I got the ball, I broke a long one, touchdown. Next time we got the ball, I scored another strong TD. That was that. The Giants stopped going for my eyes. I think I know why. I've always felt that competition stripped to his essence is a battle of will. Skills, conditions, even luck may vary. Only one thing is constant. Break an opponent's will, you will beat him every time. Control a man's mind, his body will follow. Notice Brown said control a man's mind. But the primary context of this passage, passage dealt with the emotion of fear. A more accurate statement might have been take away a man's control over his emotions, his body will follow. After all, the origin for the word will is the Latin vele, which is to wish. Wishing involves desire, which requires an emotional investment. 
Once a player's emotional well-being supersedes his investment in his performance, his will's gone. While Brown says he wasn't physically scared, I think he's trying to differentiate between two types of physical fear, and one of them did scare him. We're also talking about how one of arguably one of the toughest players in football history perceived fear. Later in Out of Bounds, Brown shares a conversation with Hall of Fame tight end John Mackey about fear. John said, shit, when I used to play against certain guys, I knew were scared. First play, I'd pop them upside their head. That was the end. I didn't have to worry about them the rest of the game. John was right. Football is not about tricky plays. It's about dominance, physical and mental dominance. What Mackey said hasn't changed much 60 years later. In my RSP film episode with former NFL defensive end Ryan Riddle, my old friend who used to write the Bleacher Report, Riddle drew upon his experience to discuss the emotional element involving um, Shaq Thompson's first quarter hit on a UCL A defender when we were watching the Carolina safety, or at least former Carolina safety and linebacker in that moment. And Ryan said, that was a nice hit, you know. You make a statement with something like that. These guys are trying to feel each other out. It's like the first round of a boxing match or MMA fight. Moving around the ring and saying, hey, you really want to play here? You really want to make those catches there? You'll maybe think about that the next time you come around here. This is my house. Despite every level of football tightening the rules on physical violence, the bodily intimidation factor is never going away as long as physical contact is an integral part of the game. Although a dominant ground game still beats or breaks the will of the opposition in today's NFL, the dramatic growth and emphasis of the passing game since the Jim Brown era means there's a greater investment in factors other than brute force and physical punishment. That means you shouldn't underestimate the psychological power of intellectual domination. One great hit may sap a player's will immediately, but a series of intellectual defeats based on physical underpinnings of timing, strategy, and precision also creates enough confusion to instill fear and drain an opponent's will. Do you think Johnny Unitas' acumen as a play caller and timing with Raymond Barry didn't create fear and awe in the same way that Tom Brady going to Rob Gronkowski, both guys who were well past their prime physically according to most analysts the way that they draw fear in the minds of defenders who don't know where they're going to throw the ball next and have difficulty conceiving of the fact that they've just covered someone tight enough but the ball just lands exactly where it needs to be every time how do they feel that they're going to be able to stop that i mean fran tarkenton scrambles way back when that tired out pressure and found easy passing lanes those were often backbreakers. Look at Russell Wilson's fourth quarter scrambles. And look at that throw to Marshawn Lynch in a Monday night game against Washington back in 2014. And you'll see an emotional dagger right there. The speed and grace of Sid Gilman's passing offenses were enough to generate a career-oriented existential crisis among defenders who had to face them. Offenses that spread the field and the resulting hybridization of skill players have increased the strategic element of the game and the demand for speed and quickness. So these changes, 
have also upped the value of mental dominance as a common fear factor. It's no coincidence that as the strategic elements of the game have grown, so have the means to intellectualize it. The combine, the data movement, ESPN sports science TV show, fantasy football, they all rely on these strategic and physical elements that can be weighed, measured, timed, tracked, and documented. These processes provide layers of helpful information, but they can even unintentionally make an orphan of the emotional element of the game. In an academic vacuum, the idea of interdisciplinary research among kinesthesiologists and sports psychologists sounds like a fantastic way to change this growing notion that the emotional element of football has no valid place in analysis. However, imagine what it would take to survey the emotional changes of athletes and attempt to pinpoint something like broken will or momentum changes. Can you imagine researchers asking football players questions or having the athletes wired for observations to immediately gauge emotions after the opposition mentally or physically dominates them? It, sure, it would be an amazing breakthrough if they could do it, but if you believe any player or team would ever consent to having their resiliency and toughness on the field psychoanalyzed? Think again, brother. That No way in hell that's happening. Players would fear how teams would use or misuse the data to judge their emotional fitness to play the game. Just imagine when an employee of one of these organizations then leaks an individual's data to the media and the general public and now how that could just ruin a career before it even starts. It could prevent an otherwise good talent from emotionally growing into the player he's capable of becoming. The emotional element of football is not invalid or obsolete because these newer methodologies just simply lack the tools, technology, and application to measure its impact on the field. We may have to do our own interpretation of emotional elements of the game, and, and this analysis will all, always be complete, incomplete at that point, but so are the film-based strategy-inspired and, and data-driven judgments that never factor emotional impact at all. Of course, there's no such thing as perfect information, but it's important that we don't deny an element of the game because we can't measure it the same way we measure distance traveled in space and time or technique, strategic results, or physical characteristics. Because, you know, high art, regardless of the medium, whether it's music, sculpture, sport, has flaws and complexities that are sometimes beyond our grasp of logic. The word analysis is a Greek origin for analysis, meaning a breaking up, which according to Wikipedia, the word has been ascribed to Isaac Newton in the form of practical method of physical discovery, which he didn't name. In the context of studying football tape as a practical method of physical discovery, I much prefer analyzing moments of football rather than critiquing them. However, I'd be fooling myself if I claimed I never critiqued football players. I do it all the time. You know, on my Twitter account 
or you listen to me on this podcast or at Football Guys, the Audible, I critique players all the time. Critiquing football involves a judgment like a ranking or determining a prospect's ability to make the cut in the NFL. Although rankings and judgments are a part of my job that financially sustains me as a writer, I much prefer the analysis side. Taking apart a player's game, learning how it fits together, and how it might fit in the professional ranks. A reason is the capacity for football to have an artistic layer. Great art often appeals to our emotions. And despite its power, it can also be flawed. The perfection is often its imperfections. Brett Favre's play was often high art, even if there were moments where it was as lowbrow as some of Shakespeare's characters. The Packers' quarterback-inspired seasons of coaches screaming, no, no, to begin a play, only to end it with a resounding yes. Barry Sanders defied the logic of the running back position. Ask a coach if he'd teach a young running back to take the conceptual risks that Sanders took, and if you get anything different than hell no, that coach either has the next Barry Sanders or they have a serious lack of coaching wisdom or they're just a downright liar. Great art breaks rules and transcends flawed ideas and limitations. It makes risky choices and succeeds in spite of them, if not because of them, and sometimes it defies logical explanation. There are performers, writers, and visual artists who are confounded by the logic of an educated critique, where the critic sees far more in that artist's work than what even the artist intended. It doesn't mean that what the critic saw is wrong. It also doesn't mean that what the artist did was less artful because what the critic sees wasn't part of what the artist consciously tried to do. Great football players and plays can have the same layers of complexity whether intellect or logic doesn't do justice to explain its quality. Now, I wanted to share this because when we talk about performance, performance is different than practice. And as we begin the season and some of those preseason thoughts that we've all had based on reports or what we've seen in preseason games or what our expectations are get turned on their ear, I want to explain a little bit why, especially for young players, rookies, unproven vets who are getting their first chance to start. Because one of the common things about scouting that good scouts know is that there are players who light up practices who thrill in exhibition games. But when the real games start and the lights come on and they're on that big stage, they freeze up. They overthink things. They put too much pressure on themselves. They have difficulty with certain types of obstacles that they didn't encounter um, during those other practice sessions or preseason games due to what defenses do. And then they they let that get into their heads and they begin to overthink 
and they're no longer in the flow of the game. And I know that maybe being in the flow of the game or being in the zone is kind of woo-woo for some of you. But let's break this down another way. There's a difference between training and practice, whether you want to call it training or practice, they're really very tightly related. Rehearsing, which is very much related to practice and training, and the actual performance. You can get good at practicing and rehearsing, but when performance happens, it's a different thing. And I'll get more into that. But but performance different than practice. And and to begin with that, I I have performed in my life. I've performed in front of really, you know, hundreds of people in one setting, or thousand really maybe not tens of thousands, but at least a couple thousand, two, three thousand people in a setting. And I can tell you as someone who's performed that whether it is a few thousand people in a grand ballroom of a hotel on Miami Beach, or whether it's you hitting a red button on a tape recorder, even if it's a digital recorder on your computer with a mic set up in a room that you are the only one in, and you're making that tape for a private lesson teacher as a musician. The difference in your ego investment when you hit that red button to record is far different than when you're in the same room by yourself practicing the same thing, but you're not hitting that button. Because when you hit that button, when you walk out onto a stage, when you get out in front of the stands and it's a real game, the environment changes. And the environment changes inside your head because now you have to understand how to perform with a different type of emotional investment that's occurring. You know, I get, when I hit that red button to perform, I'm emotionally invested in getting it right because I want to move on to my next lesson. I want to get more material to learn. I want to show my teacher that I've figured this out. I want to show, prove to myself that I'm ready to do the next thing. I may have practiced, but what I find is that I can practice something for hours. And I've been practicing, you know, a couple of instruments now, one for a year, one for seven weeks. And for the one that I've been practicing for a year, I played that thing for 12 years before I took some time off. And I can tell you that with 30 years off from playing, that I need practice performing again. That's why I'm like actually making tapes of stuff on um, and putting it on Twitter a little bit is to get that practice. Um, but the first time in my lessons, I you know that I'd get assignments, I'd practice for you know a month on something, spend an hour on a concept maybe every day. So I may have spent 30 hours practicing something um, over and over and over again, many, many, many times and slowly. And that's something we're going to talk about too in a little bit about, you know, 
getting better in practice and what a lot of players don't do. That may be for another episode, I think. But I would practice it to the point where I could play it at a great speed with, you know, very clear, sounding good, knowing it sounded good. And then I hit that red button. And because I was out of practice with performing, I literally would listen. I, I didn't even have to listen back. But when I listened back, I was cringing. When I first finished playing it and stumbling through it, I'm thinking, what the fuck? I worked on this for literally, you know, you know, 30 hours. And it sounded great for the past five days, at least. And now I got to hit that red button and it changed, you know. And it's not anxiety. You know, there's, I, I believe that there's such thing as performance anxiety. And maybe some of this can lead to form performance anxiety if you don't have perspective, especially if you're younger and you don't have anyone talking to you about these ideas. But you have to get good at performing. And that comes with practice too. So sometimes you have to break it down and go, man, I'm going to hit this red button. And I know I'm going to... You know, I know there's a possibility I'm going to be disappointed with what I do when I play because it's not going to sound nearly as good as what I did before I hit that red button. But I just have to have practice doing that. And when I realized that, I started practicing performing every day. Every day, instead of waiting once a month to hit that red button and see how it sounded, I would practice recording myself so that I could see if I could play it right in one take, or if it took me 10 takes, or if it now only takes me seven, or if it only took, took me three. And because now I'm getting better at getting my thoughts out of my head at that moment, that emotional investment of, can I do this right? Am I going to get this right? Because I'm taping this once, and I don't want to waste a lot of time on this. I got six other things I have to tape here, and... I, I just want to move forward. Oh man, I messed this up. Now what? Am I going to ever get this right now? And you start letting doubt creep in your head. And when that happens, the whole session can fall apart. The whole experience and performance of what you're doing can fall apart because now you've let that all that doubt seep in. And that doubt is emotion. You know, a lot of that's your emotional investment into doing it right. And that happens with football players. You, you, they won't talk about it a lot because, again, if you're labeled as emotionally soft or weak-willed or you know unable to, to perform, especially when you've already done it at the college level and it suddenly you've lost your confidence, you know that causes people to feel like they need to move on quickly because it's not an easy thing to correct because, again, people don't aren't experts at talking about how all this works. Think about Ronald Jones in his first year and how he had lost his confidence and how he regained that. There are some players who lose their confidence and it never comes back. Many that we've never heard of or we heard there were supposed to be great things from them and then they were gone. So I would even go so far to say that I have a great deal of admiration for Ronald Jones, for his ability to to get out of that pit and get to the point that he's a co-starter for a Super Bowl defending champion. And he's a guy who, you know, could wind up being the full-time starter for that team down the line. 
So, you know, when you talk about the idea of performing, there has to be practice with it. And a lot of these guys don't always get the practice with it. And it's about different stages that you play on. That can be a difference. There's a difference between me, you know, it's the same overall concept. And if you don't have practice of performing in a while, it may not matter so much whether I'm playing in front of 50 people, 50,000 people, or just hitting a red button on a recorder with someone who's going to listen to it later when I email it. But there is a difference when you have been playing for a while and you've gotten used to performing. There are some subtleties that can be there, especially when you're playing or performing on a team with other people. If your band, so to speak, is 22 or 53 other guys who are all relying on you not to screw up something that's your role because they're getting paid and they don't want to get cut and lose out on the vast sums of money they have and the mortgages that they've purchased, the car payments they've made, the promises they made to their parents who you know, maybe worked two or three jobs to make sure that they could have poor fitting pants and not so good food, but they weren't hungry and they were still clothed as kids and they wanted to do something meaningful for them. You know, there's pressure in that. Ben Watson once told me when I did a feature on him at the University of Georgia when he was with the Ravens late in his career. I asked him, you know, what, what I've heard that's different when you play in the pros, that there's like a different pressure there, that it feels different to perform. And he said he agreed with that. And he said that's a it's very different. And most players will talk about that amongst themselves. He said when he first began his career with the Patriots, while he had played at the University of Georgia where you know, the stadium was just as big or bigger than many pro stadiums or he was at Duke and they had a decent-sized stadium, he said it didn't compare to when he stepped onto the Patriots field for his first real regular season NFL game. He said because when you look around the room and the nerves that I described with what Jim Brown talked about, when you see that, he said, and you see that these are grown-ass men, I'm paraphrasing, grown-ass men who are paying bills and they're depending on you to help them pay their bills and not get cut. He said, that heightens the stakes, especially when you're playing against, you know, playing with guys who are significantly older than you now. And have been guys you watched on TV. And they're counting on you. It ups the ego investment. The emotional investment. In what you're doing. And if you've never experienced that. Even though you may have played in a national championship game. Or you've played in your state high school championship game. Or you played in front of your mom and dad and Pop Warner. And it was kind of nerve wracking. I mean... You know, everyone's emotions are different, but 
if you've never, you know, what he's just talking about was new to him. And it took time to figure that out. And I don't think people honor that as much as viewers of the game because I don't think they've experienced it a lot. A lot of people, they don't, you know, if they they can say, well, I played in the high school band or I was in a play or I got up in a talent show and recited something or, you know, whatever. I do public speaking. Fine. You may have done those things in your past. But if you don't make a living performing, that's something you may have forgotten. Or it's just not something you may have even really considered because you weren't emotionally mature at that time. And it's something that just wasn't a, a, a huge conscious thought. You just thought, I'm not really good at this. I made a lot of mistakes. Or I, you know, but most people remember what it's like performing in front of others. And just because these guys can have shown greatness at times at, at levels below the NFL doesn't mean that they aren't impacted by this as well. They still are young men. And it doesn't mean that, they, that because they played at LSU or Georgia or Texas or Ohio State that they've got it all figured out. Sometimes they think that they come to the league, they start dropping passes, they start overthinking on routes. They they have new new running blocking schemes to learn. Now they're facing Hall of Fame caliber defensive ends and defensive tackles who are much bigger, stronger, faster, and smarter than anyone they've ever seen combined. And they start to doubt. They start to try and think about what they're doing right. Every little detail of their game starts to get scrutinized in the moment. And when that happens, things they slow down. And because they slow down, players blow by them, dominate them. And it gets worse and worse and worse because they haven't faced that. And some guys recover quickly because they figure out what's going on. Others go through a slump early on. And then they get questioned in the media. They get questioned daily by media and fans about whether they're at, these guys are actually good after all. So it's it's important to understand that performance is a big part of that and they have to get used to performing in the league. You know, and it hits them at different times. They might start strong and then they hit an obstacle and then they've never dealt with obstacles like this. So, you know, that matters. And rehearsal is a different part of that because rehearsal, again, is a more controlled environment. The preseason is more controlled. You're not always dealing with the same level of complexities of defensive looks or offensive play calls that you're going to see in the regular season. So it can give a false sense of confidence. So when we talk about performance, you know, I, I want people to realize that it is about practicing that, you know, that if you haven't practiced performing, you know, then, you know, you have to understand that for, you know, for these players, they have a shorter timeline to, to get better at performing. They can't just suck at performing for a long period of time or they'll get replaced. But even the best players have awful awful moments 
If you go back and watch old tapes of Hall of Famers, you'll see it. You'll see bad seasons or weeks where you look at them and go, wow, they missed that tackle or they completely misdiagnosed that play. That happens. Um, so the, the point, though, is people who are the best at it don't give up. They, they find a way to practice the things that they're not good at. And practicing is about working on something you're not good at until you can actually do it or working on something you can't do until you can do it. Now, you'll see that in, in our society with football, when we watch practice, we end up over-critiquing people who are doing just that because we're looking for pe perfection right there. And they've kind of meshed practice with performance in a lot of ways that's unfair. They set an expectation of this being a performance by allowing fans to be at practices and media to be at practices. And when media's critiqued practices, they're critiquing it like it's a performance. And that can really conflate some things. Unless you're a Tom Brady or a Patrick Mahomes who can make mistakes in practice now and people don't think that they're bad. Though, you know, Mahomes in his first year threw six interceptions in his first practices and people freaked out. Whereas Tom Brady has talked about, and I wrote about this during that year, and during that summer and when that happened, said, calm down, everyone. Because, I mean, again, Tom Brady purposely looks for things that he's not sure he's going to be able to do to see if he can do it and see whether it's worth continuing to practice on to get better at or if it's something that he shouldn't even try. That's the value of practice that some players, when they're just trying to make the team or to get the starting job, don't have the luxury of doing to the degree that you would think. But when you realize the dynamic that's in play that I just discussed, it, it, it's understandable, as shitty as it really is. So, you know, getting good, understand that practice, what practice is about and how NFL has kind of greased the skids away from the true nature of what practice should be. That's part of it. Um, but practice is, you know, it's, it's a matter, you have to get better. And when you want to get better, you just have to keep doing it. At some point, you have to understand that even the best performers have had such bad moments, like I said, but they keep going. And when you keep going, I mean, the, that's when you get the lessons. I mean... I have a 16-year business and, you know, you can look at the, whether you agree or not, and that's fine. You can look at the, the ratings that people have given my podcast or the followers that I have on social media or the subscriptions that I've gotten with my work. And all those things are indicators that I've been successful in my career at this point. But it came... With on the bricks, the foundation that I built was on mistakes. Because all the mistakes I've made with the RSP, and I've made many, they were all things that I learned from. 
I wouldn't have been able to see Patrick Mahomes for what he could be if I didn't make the mistake of loving playing Gabbert as a prospect and learning from it. I wouldn't have seen Nick Chubb and steadfastly stayed, you know, my kept my ground on how I felt about him above Saquon Barkley if I didn't take those chances in the past with players that I believed in based on my process and failed. Or because really what it was is failing to stand my ground on players that I knew based on my process were good, but early on in my career lacked the conviction to do it because my ego investment in people respecting me right away as opposed to doing work that was respectable that I could respect myself for the decisions that I made. And I learned that early enough that I didn't, you know, that I could learn to stand my ground and be firm about my opinions on players to a degree that it benefits me now when it works out. When it doesn't, you know, of course, I'll get, you know, I'll get criticized just like everybody else, if not more so because of, you know, having that kind of nature and not bending to the will of what public opinion has to say about certain things. But, you know, that's just part of the nature. You learn from your mistakes and you get better when you make those mistakes. And I, and I think that when you know this and you know that the best players persevere and the ones who don't fall by the wayside, you know, a lot of it is how they handle the emotional at, you know, emotional aspect of the game, what the fallout, the emotional fallout of the game. So, you know, that's what I really wanted to share with you. I hope that if you're interested in scouting, that you understand that this is a hard thing to evaluate in players because until they get tested on this highest stage you won't know unless you've interviewed them and you have to be an expert at interviewing and a lot of NFL teams aren't so the difficulty so one of the things that I look for just from watching tape is how players respond to mistakes when they make a big mistake can they correct that mistake do they get down on themselves or do they come back from it after a bad quarter, a bad series, a bad game, a bad two to three games? Do they, do they work their, their way through it? Because when they show that, that is a demonstration of mental toughness. And you can see with body language sometimes whether players get down on themselves and it's okay if they get down on themselves, but do they come back from it? Do they rebound in their performance? Or do they need someone else to bail them out? And it's not, and you can't just do it with one game. You have to be able to do it with multiple games to see. Otherwise, you might have a sneaking feeling one way or another, but you don't want to make a definitive statement just yet. So, you know, those are some things that I look for because most players in interviews 
are coached to say certain things. And it's just so derivative that for the most part, you can tell that they're full of crap and you're not getting any real value out of what's being asked. So a lot of it's about action anyhow, or you have to have some really serious testing or interviewing skills and some experts who can discern body language, how players respond, the nat- how they frame their responses, a lot of analytical things going on that you're just not always going to see in the NFL. You'll see it to some degree with certain teams or with certain experts, but it's not always across the board, and it's not uniformly right. It's a very difficult thing to evaluate. So, you know, I'll probably ask Russ to talk a little bit more about this, and we'll talk about the emotion of the game as a follow-up. I think this will be probably one of our first scout talks. The next one that I want to talk about, too, I think down the line is what I talked about earlier, which is about um, practicing and getting better and about, you know, what it is about making mistakes and figuring out, you know, how to build from that, not only as a scout, but from watching players do it. So there's a number of things, a number of topics that we'll, we'll delve into about the nature of performance and the nature of practice and about learning technique and about practicing your ability to practice performance. And we'll see if we can, we can arrive at some interesting you know, paths of discussion here. But hopefully you found this as an, um, an interesting foray or introduction to some of the things that we'll talk about this year. And I appreciate you listening. And of course, you know, you can get your rookie scouting portfolio available at mattwaldman.com. Um, you can get both the pre-draft and post-draft guide at $21.95, or you can get my projections for Dynasty and the rankings that I do, and they're out periodically um, through the end of this year, in addition to one time before the NFL draft in 2022. So you'll even get a little bit of a primer for that if you pay $24.95. So far, people have really enjoyed that aspect of it. They feel like that that combined with the $21.95 RSP is really one of the best deals that, of content that they've been able to come across when it comes to football and football geared towards the fantasy manager. All right, thanks for listening. Guys, have a good weekend. Good luck in your games this week.